I am Kevin. I am Giovanna. I am adventurous. I am dreamer. I am creative. I am wine. I am dance. I am entrepreneur. I am musician. I am privileged. I am activist. I I am am podcast. Learning. Growing. Inspiring. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the I Am The Band podcast, where we have another amazing and very special guest today. I'm going to get into the formalities real quick before we start. (laughs) He's dancing. (laughs) Our guest today was always meant to be a musician. He was influenced by a lot of great music growing up and eventually fell in love with the guitar. He started playing seriously at the age of 15. At 23, he received his first break in his career. The saxophonist Harold Batiste, one of his mentors, helped him land a position of musical director with Sonny and Cher. In 1970, he became the musical director for Gladys Knight and the Pips and soon was working with many of the Motown acts serving as musical director and guitarist for... Dana Ross, Thelma Houston, Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson. Hey. Mama, you heard that one. She loves Smokey <laughs> Robinson. The Four <laughs> Tops and the Jackson Five. By the late 1980s, he was becoming more active as a producer. He wrote music for Martin Lawrence Show, taught at the Henry Mancini Institute, and arranged for the National Symphony Orchestra. Hmm. Throughout his very productive career, he has made significant contributions to the music of dozens of musical legends, artists such as Paul Anka, Sammy Davis Jr., Aretha Franklin, Isaac Hayes, Michael Jackson, James Brown, Joan Baez, Al Green, Herbie Hancock, everybody in my playlist, Ray Charles, (laughs) and Stevie Wonder. And he finally stepped out into the limelight recording three CDs of his very own musical director, arranger, composer, artist, producer, and world-renowned guitarist. Please, 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 please welcome Mr. Greg Perret. So excited. <laughs> <laughs> Clap for thank yourself. You, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thanks for being with us today. We're super excited. I hear your name all the time by this one. Yeah. All the I time. I can't stop. And I've only met you once. I don't know if you remember, but yeah. super excited oh, yeah, to get from, into uh, it. From Nick Cooper's place. Was it Nick? Oh, no, that's Cooper. mine. No. Oh. Well, I know you came here to, to do oh, something. Oh, yes. So you here. Yeah, that's what oh, I that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You blessed right. That's right. When uh, Giovanna did that beautiful cello overdub on my music. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was it. You came and joined Come on. We, we have to do something with that. <laughs> Please. Oh, my goodness. Let's, let's do yes. more. Uh, yeah. We're, we're definitely gearing up for that. Yeah, oh, very yeah. exciting. There's some yeah. exciting things happening. So. Because, I mean, that's where I'm in my life right now. Is I mean, composing, as I told you, is still my first love. Mm. And uh, so I've written a lot of pieces uh, over the past couple of years, and I want to get them out there. Which is so, so exciting, uh, because I, I don't know how many people know you as a composer. Like me, myself, when I first got to meet you, we were sitting, we were working actually on an Oscars, uh, one of uh, on the Oscars, and I, there was only three cellists, and behind us was this very sweet, incredibly talented, like, yeah, yeah gr- I mean, you could just tell, he, you know, he was listening. Oh, it must have been Paul Jackson then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we, that's how we first met. And, you know, eventually we crossed paths again through a mutual program that our daughter was participating in. And Kevin was just 
floored. I mean, enamored. Oh my gosh. We went to go hear our daughter, but Kevin could not stop talking about this guitar player. And of course, you know, it's like, I know him. I know you. <laughs> but little did I know that this relationship would turn into something so beautiful and such a mentorship and such a supportive role and, and just a great relationship. And then later find out what an incredible composer and arranger you are. I just, I had no idea. Um, and I think a lot of our colleagues don't realize the multifaceted talents of some of our colleagues and this is a perfect example of it. So I would love to hear a little bit of just your story. I mean, we heard your bio there, but how did you come to be where you are and have so many of these great experiences? Well, first of all, it, it, it does start with love. It starts with loving what you do. So at age 15, I pretty much knew that this is what I wanted to do. So from that point on, it just became setting my setting myself on that path. Mm. But in the beginning, when I first started playing the guitar, I I always enjoyed inventing new ideas or creating new ideas. So we all know that there's the music business and then there's music. And sometimes the two actually come together. Mm. But, uh, <laughs> so in terms of gigs, in terms of just working as a musician, I've been very fortunate. And uh, the credits will attest to that. I've just been very lucky in terms of being in the right place at the right time. But uh, it seems to me that my life's journey has been to get back to my original self, which is that 15-year-old kid who loves to write music. Hmm. Hmm. So the work experience that I gained from doing all of these sessions and working with all, all of these artists, I feel gave me my doctorate in music 101. So I feel now I'm at that point where I can take all of that experience and knowledge and put it into what has meaning for me as a composer. So what I mean in the at the young you said you started playing guitar at 15. Yeah. Before then, what, did you have an inkling towards music? Did you know that there was a call a special calling there were your parents musicians? How did you find absolutely, your way to absolutely. music? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, again, I feel I was very lucky because there was always music in our house. Now, my dad was born in 1905, and he was born in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So he, he was around the birth of jazz. And as a Creole, he knew a lot of the Creole musicians, like Sidney Bechet and people of that ilk. And uh, he knew that family. So that music always resonated with him because he was around it when it was new. I always heard that music from him. And my mother was really into Count Basie and Duke Ellington and all of the swing era music. So I always heard that music from her. And then my sister listened to everything else. So there was always music. Wow. But around about 10 years old, I, I really started to gravitate toward classical music. I like hearing symphonic music. Hmm. And I'd sit in my room at nighttime and turn on the, the symphony orchestra and listen to that music. So in terms of exposure, I was exposed to a lot of music. And then at age 15, the first music I learned on the guitar was folk music. So that's another whole genre. Mm, yeah. I mean, the first tune I ever learned how to play was Skip to Malou. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is it that led you in that direction to have all of these other influences? So many people, the first thing they want to do is start learning the tunes that they've heard, they're familiar with and working through them. Sure. sure. So why folk, why folk music? Well, it was arranged by my sister. She was the one who did it because her boyfriend at the time got her a guitar. So my dad could see that I was also interested in the instrument. So they never wanted to force music lessons onto me. They tried it with my sister and it ended in disaster. And so, but, but she was interested in the guitar. So it was around, this is like, wow, this is like in the 19, early 1960s, late 1950s. 
And uh, so folk music was starting to take off. So that was like the thing. Mm. And so my sister did some research and found this guy who was teaching guitar. And so we took lessons together. Hmm. But he was a folk singer. Oh. He was a folk singer, you know. So you you know, he had influence. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I, that was my first experience, my first learning experience. But uh, my parents could see that I was really into it. So as time went on, my sister had a friend who was singing backup with Ray Charles. And her husband was a, a jazz guitar player. His name was Nick Bonney. My parents and my family could see that I was getting serious about it. So they hooked me up with Nick. And again, I was very fortunate because Nick, Nick was a jazz guy. He was totally a jazz player, but he was very well versed in music theory. And he also loved classical guitar. Hmm. So I had a great foundation for theory. Uh, I had a great introduction into classical guitar and into jazz all at the same time. Amazing. Hmm. What an amazing opportunity to have all of those sort of yeah. laid in front of you, because as we've spoken in the past, <clears throat> excuse me, there are so many musicians that theory is sort of just a, almost like an anomaly. It's this little thing that is there, but it's not really implemented. It's not applied theory. And to have all of that in the very beginnings of your studies, I think, gives yeah, you really a, an upper hand in the understanding of the language of music. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know my theory. I, well, my take on theory which I, I hate that word because it's like learning a language. If I wanted to learn French, I'm not going to say I'm going to study French theory. You're going <laughs> to study the language. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Theory to me has no relevance at all. It's learning a language. And in terms of harmony, that's like fertilizer. The richer the soil, then the more beautiful the melody. Mm, yes. And we, we just live in an era where it's all melody and all rhythm. That's fine, but it doesn't give the melody a chance to flourish. Right. And so what I hear a lot of is just a lot of licks and riffing and, you know, with no, with no, no fertilizer, no soil mm. to support it. Mm. Just a lot of beats and a lot of production and a lot of process. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I read about that. Like you were big on the language of music and, and really studying and learning how to write and read music. What are your thoughts on some of these young kids today, their access to like YouTube and being able to just play a song and think they're an expert. <laughs> I, I feel like that for everything as far as dance. I'm a dancer and now you can go sure. on the internet and you can learn how to be an expert at something. You know, I, The word I have a problem with and what you just said is learning. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're really learning. I think no, you're being you're informed. Yeah. You're being informed. Mm -hmm. And it's under the guise of getting an education. Mm -hmm. But I think YouTube University is not the way to go. No, it is not. <laughs> you know, because just as a musician, you know, a lot of times if I'm trying to research a song or want to get a song, oh, I, you know, I'll say I'll, I'll look it up on, you know, on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And in terms of printed music, I can honestly say about 90% of what I find is not written correctly. Wow. Yes. So there's a lot of misinformation. So mm -hmm. if, there's mis if, if there's that much misinformation in what I do, then I think how much misinformation is out there on other areas. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think in so another in interview, I was talking about how I didn't feel comfortable as a dance teacher, probably not until 15 or 20 years in, because I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. We're all learning and growing and evolving. But I, it just blows my mind that some of these people are experts now, all of a sudden on, on the internet and they haven't really put the time in and studied and sure. Yeah. Sure. And that's a process, you know, but a lot of it is, and, and Giovanna, we've talked about this, just 
music in schools and edu- you know educating people. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, it's a shame because it's not about being a musician. I think music, it's, it's already proven that music does improve your ability to learn. Hmm. So it just it improves that. It's, a, it's good training for the brain. To me, it serves a twofold purpose. It also creates an audience that will appreciate better music. Mm. And I know that there are a lot of young musical artists out there who are really good and really competent and really do understand it as a language. And I feel that they will survive. I think any any artist, musical artist that buys into a fad or and doesn't really get the education will not survive. Mm-hmm. And I see it all the time. I see a lot of my colleagues who bought into a certain style or a certain genre, and now they're starving. They can't make a living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so, like you don't know. You know, you so don't know. I, I feel that because of my experience and exposure to so many great musicians and so much wonderful musical education, I've been able to survive financially, I mean, well into my 70s. That's amazing. <clears throat> yeah, but, I know. That's but amazing. I didn't. I didn't even feel that I, as a musician, as an artist, that I even got close to that till I hit fifty. Wow! Mm. Even with all of the people that you were already, were all of the, Ab- the absolutely the it was all learning. And, yeah, I, I heard a. I heard a great quote from a, a Japanese artist who loves salsa. I, mm. uh, Kevin, I think I told you this quote. She said, "Everything and everything before fifty is practice." <laughs> I love it. I I'll love take it. that. And after that, you start to sink into it and say, okay, this is how it works. This is so how it works. true. So true. Well, that's. Oh, and, and so, Giovanni, do you know the Pablo Casals quote? No. Well, no. So, you know, so for the listening audience, Pablo Casals was one of the greatest cellists of all time. Mm-hmm. And, he, and uh, during an interview, the interviewer said, I heard that you practice three to four hours a day. And this is when he was in his 90s. And he said, well, it seems to be working out. I'm getting better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a lifelong thing. Mm -hmm. It really is. And the thing is, there's so much to learn. I mean, for cello, it's 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 one thing. I'm a, I'm a cellist by design, <laughs> um, but the repertoire that's there for me is very. I mean, now it's definitely starting to grow, but it's 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 definitely sure. very sort of one lane, right? It's I, I feel like with the guitar, you've got a plethora of of genres that that you can you can learn and and I feel like almost not that the learning is limited in the world of cello because now especially people are using so many unconventional techniques and ways to right. to make music with the instrument that really excite me as somebody that's classically trained and um I feel that a lot of times there's that wall up with classical musicians that were afraid to step outside of the classical world or outside of something that's written and in, in, in front of us. And it's really all fear-based. It's because of the fear of the yeah. unknown. But we sat down with Paul Jackson as well, and, and it was incredible to just talk about his versatility. And I think that that is innate or, or sort of more catered to people like guitarists and pianists where they're very much the instruments that you will find across all genres. You can find a guitar you know in certain symphonic works you can find a guitar in a rock band you'll find a guitar in a folk band and a jazz band and and so i feel like the world of learning for you guys is even more uh, it's just vast Vast, you just froze Uh oh we froze oh no now you're back okay yeah that (laughs) that world is just so vast yeah, that is an excellent point. And, uh, you know, I, I've always considered the piano, the novel and the guitar, the short story. And uh, but as instruments, yes, you're right. They do. They cross genres. 
So for me personally, that's always been great because I can put on my my blues hat or my jazz hat or my folk hat and just and dive into that world. What but world you know that, do you feel most comfortable in? Is there any genre where you feel, okay, this is, I know oh, you like many, but. Yeah, and that's true. And for me, my favorite place is when I've got a new idea for a new piece of music. Mm, okay. That's my favorite place. And it doesn't matter the genre. Mm-hmm. Did you, you know, in term, you know, one day I I may be in the mood to listen to some Ravel. The next day I may want to listen to James Brown. Mm. And 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 all of that music excites me if that's the mood I'm in. Yeah, love it. Now was this? But you know, but you okay. know, Giovanna, you said something though that really that struck me. And because I, and I thought of it because there's a young man that I'm teaching now who's a classical pianist, and he wants to go into music therapy. Oh. And so in order to do that, he needs to be a multi instrumentalist. So he decided to take up the guitar. And we were having the same discussion just the other day about how classical musicians, you play what's in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a travesty. I, I feel that what's not taught is the logic of why it developed this way. Yes. And I think that's just as easy to teach as scales or, you know, play this harmonic minor scale or melodic minor scale and hear the notes. And that's the key signature. But there's a logic as to why all of that came about. And I wish that was there was more of an emphasis on that. Yeah. Can that really be taught or is it really innate? I'm not a musician, but it sounds like it's something that's more innate. Yeah, I, I I try and teach that way. You know, it's the same with guitar players. I, you know, so much of guitar education, you're not reading music. Mm-hmm. You're not looking at music. You're looking at a, a grid. It's like, put this finger there, put that finger there. That's mm-hmm. where tabs mm-hmm. came from. Mm-hmm. But you're not really learning music. You're just learning where to put your fingers. So yeah. what? You're not You're not becoming a musician. And it's what you referred to earlier. If you go on to YouTube University, you know, they say, oh, do this, do this, do this, and you'll be the greatest dancer that ever lived. (laughs) You know, learn how to play music in two weeks, and you don't have to learn how to read. You don't have to learn how to do any of that. Just put your fingers there, and you're going to be great. Uh, yeah, you might be great for about five minutes. <laughs> yeah, and it's really amazing how it, it crosses across not only music. I was just listening to another podcast where sure. somebody was speaking about the critical thinking that's lacking in our education today, just Absolutely. in general, in the general public and here in our United States of America, that there's so much there, or that there's not enough critical thinking happening in education mm-hmm. where right. it's it's all just being fed and not a lot of it is really, you know, about thinking about it and, and grasping and being able to see things from different angles. And I really feel like that's what was lacking in my education, because the moment that a musician told me there are no wrong notes, it was almost (laughs) like they gave me wings. It was incredible. It was amazing. Like, what do you mean there are no wrong notes? And, And almost like, you know, that cringing when I did hit what I thought was a wrong note. And was able to step out of it and figure out how to how to work my way out of it and make it that right note, right? I think there's a I, there's a famous quote I feel like by Miles Davis, maybe where oh yeah, you're only a half Hancock. step away from the right note. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like it. There I was some it. other story too. I think of Herbie Hancock. I saw something on. I, I think they called it a leading tone. There yeah. you go. <laughs> Boom. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was the magic and the reason we ended up, I ended up running into you because I've loved music for such a long time, but had, and I've taken theory classes, piano, but I just <laughs> never fell on on the right spot and started writing music, was working with different people, but really realized how 
just snuffed I was. And through working with you, I started to realize I grew up on hip hop and hip hop, you know, you got two and four bar loops. And as much as I love listening to hip hop, I always was kind of kind of taken aback by it not developing or going somewhere. You know, after you've heard those first four bars, the song's over, you know, unless you're listening to the lyrics. But, but see, I, I think to me, not to cut you off, but yeah. there's a huge difference. Hip hop to me is still more in the poetic world than right. it is in the musical world. Right, we've had that discussion, mm-hmm. yeah, yes. Yeah, we did. You know, the the part the part of hip hop that is musical is really machine generated mm-hmm. and it's more in this realm of sound design, right. not music. Mm. Okay. So I think it's an insult to, to musicians and an insult to hip hop people because when I hear the raps, when I hear these artists memorizing all of those words and then putting that passion and feeling and emotion into it, that's poetry to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. not music, it's poetry. But yep. the delivery, we were talking about Biggie and how he was influenced by jazz musicians, and you can tell just the way his flow is. Mm-hmm. Certain rappers and, and it's crazy, they, yeah. Yeah. cadence and certain Amazing. things that they picked up to listen mm-hmm. to music. Yeah. Yeah, but so, so was that, the, but it was, I through that, you know, listening to hip hop and then, of course, other you know, Luther Vandross and you have other, R, you know, R&B songs. I started sure. to, in terms of writing, wanted to find, you know, a place where I could really express myself. And it was really difficult for the longest time. But it wasn't until I met you, until I heard you play and until we actually got to talk. Now hearing you, all of these experiences, you really were the correct teacher in terms of being able to rightly divide all the information and get it to me in the way I needed it. Because I am kind of a feel person too. Like I, I do like... I don't know. I'm kind of a good split between a person that's really techie and a person that is a feel person that runs off of instinct. And you were able to kind of meet that road and, and, you know, give me just the amount that I needed to keep pushing me forward and not overloading me with all this technique and, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, so I have so enjoyed teaching you. And to me, what has grown out of it is just a wonderful friendship with the whole family. I mean, it's a wonderful friendship. But, you know, and I have to get this on tape. (laughs) To the audience out there that's listening, Kevin Clayton gave me one of the best quotes, and I have worn it to death, and I always credit him with it. (laughs) There was one lesson you were having, and we were going over scales and improvisation and how it works and blah, 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 blah. And you said just without dropping a beat, we're always chasing melody. And I love that because the imagery of that is the human spirit always reaching for that other place, that other place, Mm. getting out of that wrong note to the right note. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's all of that. The way you said it just really stuck with me. Well, you put me back in that child form, you know, open and willing to ask those questions. And it was only being able to be allowed to be in that place where, you know, I could ask questions and kind of explore. Oh, it's, I think it's very important. I, I think learning should be I, a mixture of curiosity and fun and just work. Mm-hmm. I think so much of what is music education is teaching rules instead of teaching teaching understanding. Mm-hmm. And that, that does get me down. I, I, I just feel like if teachers taught, yes, there are rules, yes. But all these rules grew out of someone chasing melody. <laughs> someone played a major scale and they said, well, how come I can't start it on the second scale degree and make that the primary tone? Mm. But it isn't taught that way. That's a Dorian scale and you got to play it this way and right. blah, 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 blah. And it's the raised this and the flatted that. And oh, my God, give me a break. Yeah, yeah. it really gets I mean, you get so bogged <laughs> down in trying to understand that, that 
you don't even get to the point of even hearing it, I feel like. I was so right. worried about learning the lingo and understanding that even to, to this day, I, I can't name you all of the scales and I can't name, but I spent so much time trying to learn that and for what? But if I somebody would have put the cello in my hand and just had me play it so I could understand the reasoning behind it, you know, connect those two dots. I yeah. think it would have just been a completely different experience mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of, of my musical yeah. journey. It seems like that's the American way when I stop and think about it. When you look at our health system, you look at the government, we're running to all of these problems because people aren't looking at, at the roots of things. You know, there's right. all of these, right. you know, superficial rules that they're stacking on top that you've got to get through right. and you're never really getting to, you know, the real reason you have a headache. Just take a pill to get rid of, <laughs> you know, get rid of the headache. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you should, maybe we should just turn the music down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Stop chasing the melody. <laughs> or start chasing oh, the start melody. Chasing. <laughs> I love that we have a Kevin Clayton quote. <laughs> it must be on our website. Oh, that, that, <laughs> yeah, it really. Look, Kevin, take that one and run. It's Man, a good but one. you've blessed me. Just, you know, it speaks so much of your heart right off the bat. I'm so used to people taking credit or... <laughs> I don't know. And it's so beautiful to have a teacher who, you know, would even acknowledge it and then would continue to tell people about it. it down, that on top of everything else you've done have really uh, emboldened me to, you know, do the things that I really love to do. And I really appreciate you for that. That's that's uh-huh. what I think all teachers should be doing. You know, people start things and they have a passion for it. And a lot of time, unfortunately, it's the teachers are the reason that people no longer have the passion. They should yeah, be, mm-hmm. you know, increasing the passion and showing them, you know, each individual individuals different different ways that they can learn and understanding how you can pull those things out of them you know, unfortunately that just it's, it's there's not many well you know that do i that. think a good teacher and a good parent should inspire yeah and you're right everybody's different you know he, we're messy so you know we're not apps on a phone right. you know <laughs> Yeah. But society was is preaching that you need to be perfect, that you need to come out of the box perfect. You need to be all this. You need to be branded. You need to be this. Mm. You need to have your team. Mm-hmm. You need to have this person taking care of that. No, get your butt out there and work. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you Make, say inspired, too. I actually have done some mental work with that when you look at people I mean people don't really change people once they be you know sit or set in a place it's very rare that you'll find somebody that has actually moved from one place to another and as you think about trying to move other people that's even more impossible but yep. as you mentioned the one thing and what I started to look is it you know the information now people give people plenty of information that's not you know and eventually it got to be you know if you can do something if you can say something that at least might spark or inspire them in some way I don't know if it's to make them feel good about themselves or about what you know that is like the one thing that's the gateway to people changing or at least trying to change growing yeah yeah, yeah, and, you know, growing is tied into making mistakes. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And so, and I think that there's so much in the world that is saying you can't make mistakes. You have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And there's no such thing. If you're talking about human beings, forget it. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I want to uh, backtrack a little bit because you you likened teaching to parenting. And I know that you're a parent and have a, I, I know you at least have one son that is a successful musician. Do you, well, you know, to me, they're both successful people. Yes. Mm. And that's way more important to me than everything else. That's number one. But as human beings, they're both successful. And in terms of their, in terms of applying that to their professions, which is music for both of them, Emil is a teacher and Justin belongs in a, is in a band. 
you know, they've they've applied that. And so as adults, they're doing great. They're good people. Yeah. And that's a huge testament to to your example, because, you know, we were talking, we've talked to some other musicians who whose children have also gone into, into music and some whose children have not. And I think that, yeah. you know, a lot of parents actually make the effort to to guide their children away from the profession that they've chosen. But in your case, both of your sons, correct, uh, yeah. f- followed in your footsteps and followed into the industry. Can you speak just a little bit to that? I mean, when they did they ever just did that just evolve or? Did they come and tell you like, hey, dad, we really want to work in music? Or did they sort of just glean from you and take their own path? I could see early on, they were around about like 12 and 14, you know, 11, 13, that age range. And I could see they were really getting into hip hop. But what I could see was that they wanted to be artists. And I also feel that my sister was a big influence in that as well. And uh, and because she was a big influence on me in terms of me choosing a creative career. Hmm. So um, I feel that what what I tried to do as a parent was to say to them, I'm there for you, but find your own teachers. Because it was important for me not to impose my artistic sensibilities onto them. Hmm. I felt if they were to be true artists, they had to find their own voice. Wow. And there was too much of an age difference between my generation and their generation. Mm -hmm. So I could certainly support them with information and support them with love and support them with uh, uh, support. Well, just support them. And um, but in terms of finding their own voice, I told them from day one and my sister told them from day one, you got to find your own voice. Mm. Amazing. And I can honestly say that they do have their own voice and I'm very proud of them for that. It's amazing. I love it. Where did you get that idea from? Was that from your sister? And we want to talk more about your sister as well. But this idea of the individual, I mean, there's because there's so many parents that want that did trying to mold their children to be just like them or teach them i mean this is the world that we live in Mm -hmm. and it's very rare that you'll see someone that will let the child make mistakes they'll give them the information and just let them play in the world and 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 hey if you need something i'll tell you Where, where did that come from did your parents do that when I decided to go into music, I could see my parents were a bit uncomfortable with it. They had no reference for it. They just knew, you know, as people of color, that it was a there was the racial disparity, you know, between white and black musicians, and it was still at a time in the '60s where there, these barriers were still pretty blatant. Mm-hmm. Not they they aren't now, but it's gone more undercover. Mm-hmm. At any rate, so but to their credit, they were supportive. They did give me the message, okay, if this is what you want to do, we're there for you. You know, pursue your dream. Yeah. So um, so when my kids came along and I saw that they wanted to go in that direction, yeah, I, I, I just was not raised with the mindset that you had to force your children or force others to be something that they're not. Mm. That it's more important to find out who the person is and try and support them in that way. So that they can be themselves. Because if you're, if as a parent, what do you want your kids to be able to do? Survive and survive. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, if they're always under your, your thumb, they're not going to do well as adults. Uh huh. That's beautiful. And then you, you talked about your sister. I know sometimes the sibling relationships can be pretty contentious and you (laughs) adore, you, you talk so much about her. Can you, how was your relationship and then her influence on you? Could you talk a bit about that? Well, Anita was always a very singular-minded person. And I think as a teenager, 
her first love was she wanted to go into acting. That seemed to really resonate with her. But her her early experiences in, in acting as a late teenager, early 20s, were bad. It just didn't go anywhere. So I won't go into all the reasons at that time. I mean, we're talking about like, yeah, late 50s, early 60s, where the treatment of people of color, the treatment of women, and Anita was a gorgeous woman. So again, you know, you had all of that dynamic of a lot of guys who were on another agenda Mm -hmm. and had no interest in her in terms of her intelligence or her creativity. But Anita was extremely smart and did not suffer fools. And Mm -hmm. if you rubbed her the wrong way, she would tell you where to get off. So (laughs) I love her already. (laughs) in, In that regard, you know, yeah, she she burned a lot of bridges. Mm. But uh, my oldest and dearest friend is Jerry Peters. And Jerry and my sister wrote a bunch of hit records together. Uh, Lover, Let Me Be Lonely, uh, You Got Me Going in Circles, mm-hmm. uh, wow. Keep On Trucking. Anita wrote a lot of hit records for Motown and for uh, the Friends of Distinction. But, you know, she then she wanted to start a publishing company. But again, ran into the same thing, the same kind of just prejudices in dealing with guys who did not want to deal with a female executive at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but backtracking a bit, I mean, as kids, you know, we had a close relationship because we both were creative people. But once I got into the guitar, she could see that I was really into this. And it was something that was mine because my family, they were all over the place. (laughs) But when I got into the guitar, they could see, okay, this was, and my family was very supportive. And I have to say in terms of, in terms of pointing me in the right direction where I had access to what I needed to learn, that was my sister. And I'm very grateful for her for that. It's amazing. But getting back to, yeah, getting back to, you know, after she had all the success as a songwriter, she called me one day, she said, Greg, to hell with this. I'm tired of this. I cannot deal with this. So she just packed up and moved to Sonoma and dedicated her life to speaking out on on a lot of women's issues and a lot of people who are disenfranchised. And also she dedicated her life to art. Beautiful. That's amazing. So the next time we speak, I'm hoping to have some really good news about that because Anita hated the business of art, so she never exhibited. And all of her paintings were in a storage room up in Santa Rosa. And my son and I were able to get the whole collection down. Yeah. It's a huge collection and it's been archived and curated. And uh, I promised her before she died that I would get her art out there. Oh, my oh, that's gosh. so great. Amazing. Yeah. So I, I got some great news about that last week, but I don't want to spoil it, Chip. Oh, man. I can't <laughs> oh, wait to man. hear it. I know. We're <laughs> and I've seen some of that. Cliffhanger, so cliffhanger. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I can't give you this commercial, though. I mean, she's on Instagram. She has a page on Instagram. Oh, yes. Tell. So you can, you can Google that and see her art. Mm-hmm. Or after this interview, I'll send you the link. Perfect. Great. We'll make sure to put it in the notes for anybody that wants to check out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, she was an amazing artist an amazing artist. Her ability to convey emotion through the things that she created was pretty amazing. Wow. And it's Anita Poré? Anita Poré. I love it. That's a, such a, it, the name rolls off the tongue it so does. well. You have such a great last name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she'll be rolling over in her grave when I say this. It's Her full name is Iva Anita Jacinta Poré. Oh, Asinta. What is, yeah, that's an interesting. Yeah, but she always loved Anita, even from the time she was a little kid. She rejected her first name, which was Ivo, which was my mother's middle name. Mm. Ah, 
Well, then there's a plethora of other reasons why I can understand why she would reject that. As I'm <laughs> the daughter, I mean, the mo- I'm a daughter and I have a daughter, so I can completely understand. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's incredible. That's that's so exciting to hear. Did you and Anita ever write together? Oh yeah, when we when we were doing all the folk music stuff, we wrote a ton of songs together. Nothing ever got published, but uh, we just that was a bond between us. Hmm. I'm sure that was a real bond. How about that's working amazing. with your sons? Have you worked with your sons in the music? Uh, yes, we've done gigs together. Oh, that's and, so uh, cool. And then when Justin was really starting to get going as a percussionist, I did hire him on a few sessions. That's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so to cool. give him that experience, he was scared to death. But, you know, I, hey, sometimes you got to throw people into the fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like so you they, said, you got to You got to The experience is there's no replacement for experience. Getting in no. there and learning. Yeah, absolutely. You can't learn how to stand up if you don't fall. Exactly. You, don't, you can't learn how to get up if you don't fall. I guess you can learn exactly to stand up without right. falling. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I would love to also hear a little bit about the Jazz Foundation. I know that you are very active, not just as a player, but as an advocate for the music. And Well, the California Jazz Foundation really, that was a godsend for me because its purpose is to help musicians in need. You know, we live in a country where there's not a lot of financial support for art or artists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our founder, Edith Bronston, you know, realized this. I think she founded the organization in 2016. I think I'm right on that. And uh, it was for the purpose of helping out musicians who, for whatever reason, if it's financial or physical, they were they had fallen on a rough time. So the whole concept of that really resonated to me. And uh, so when I retired, you know, I put a lot of my energies into that. So I've been their musical director now, oh, yeah, for about eight years. And you recently started your own podcast, too. We have to talk a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. Sonic Tonic. Sounds like a tasty drink. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what I'm hoping for. People yeah. listen to it, you know, have a nice cocktail. Yeah. Sonic Tonic. That's right. <laughs> but it grew out of the pandemic. You know, when that happened, you know, we had to cancel our big fundraiser. And so we ha- at our board meetings, we're going, you know, what? you know, what, what's the next step? Mm. So I thought, I said, look, you know, you know, we're always asking for money as all nonprofits are do, mm. you know, they ask for money. I said, we need to give people something back. So that's when I thought of the idea of doing a podcast to stay relevant with our supporters to entertain them. And so Sonic Tonic became this whole platform where I focused on composers, composers in jazz and blues, and wanted to hear their stories and play their music. And so on average, the podcast run about 40 minutes and, uh, yeah, everybody. Listen yes. to Sonic Tonic. Check them out. Yeah. So much good information. That's the other thing that I learned from you. You're such a great gatherer of history and information. It's it's not, you know, again, getting back to the why when you would talk about the guitar and, and you would talk about the history and about how this came about. You do the same thing on these interviews. You guys do a really good job of just getting into the notes and bolts. And I've learned so much just listening to, you know, outside of the music, just listening about history and about. Yeah, I mean, know. you know, I mean, Kevin, don't you think life is is about stories. I mean, that's why we're, yeah. the four of us are sitting here right now. Yes, it's exactly. It's stories. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, and to me, that's 
Yeah, that's that's the beauty of life. It's not about our differences. It's where, how can we find common ground? And that does get me down about today's atmosphere politically and, and socially and on a business level. People live in little bu- bubbles. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can't get away from their iPhones. They can't get away from their home entertainment centers. Mm-hmm. They can't get away from their bubble. Yeah. And, and in doing so, what do you learn? You go to YouTube University to learn. I won't yeah. say what I'm going to say. You know, there people don't. There people don't talk back. <laughs> you just said that. exactly, exactly right, exactly. So, so you never have to really be confronted with yourself. Ooh. And, and that's the only way you're going to learn as a human being. You confront yourself by being open to what others have to say and think. Thank you so much for tuning in to this I Am podcast series entitled I Am The Band. Make sure to subscribe and tune in for part two next week. We love you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening. Interested in starting your own podcast? Visit us at IamMusicGroup.com.